I'm largely, for what it's worth, self-taught because, you know, I started writing music at a very, very young age. So by the time I was, you know, six years old, seven years old, I was just writing little things on the piano. And I, you know, wanted piano lessons when I was that age. I asked my parents for piano lessons, but not to learn how to play piano because I wanted to learn how to write down the shit that I was coming up with, you know, improvising, say, on the piano. So this is how I grew up, like, and then learning how to play piano and always writing. I honestly thought everybody did that. I had no clue that that was something different. Like, if you took violin lessons, you played violin, and you didn't write your own music. Like, why? Like, it's so much more fun to write music. Why don't you do that? It, I really had no clue until I was, like, a junior, senior in high school, <laughs> talking with my piano teacher because he was always helping me with the stuff I write. He says, you know, you really should, really, really, really should take composition lessons. And I'm like, composition lessons? Like, what's that? I'm taking piano lessons with you. Isn't that what it's all about? Like, what? I didn't understand. He was like, no, you can actually take composition lessons. In fact, you can major in composition in college. He goes, and I kind of think that's what you should do. <laughs> and my head exploded. I'm like, I didn't understand. Like, so, and that's when I, at that moment, it, he told me, and we had this conversation, like, yeah, not every kid that, that comes in here writes their own music. That's something different. And I think you should concentrate on it. So for me, you know, I, by the time I got to college, you know, I went to Eastman for my undergrad. I was already sort of doing my, had been doing my thing for a while. And I think my teachers that I had helped me write the music that I was writing. I had really, really good people with that. I didn't have a lot of teachers like what you just said. You should take out every other, every third, eighth note and make it a whatever. You know, I think teachers, you know, people like Sam Adler, it's my, like in that first four years, people like that and Schwantner were really trying to help me figure out what I was doing and what I was trying to say because I already had kind of a foothold in it. So I, you know, I, I saw everything that was going on. And, and I think when people, when I did have people and I did have some teachers try to like influence like what you just said, I literally tried it and then ignored it and threw it away. Like, okay, here it is. And then like, that's it. Like, it just wasn't me. I was so freaking arrogant, really arrogant that I, that I, that I thought I knew what I was doing and that's all I was going to do. I kind of ignored everything. And in a way it protected me from all that because it kind of kept me true to what I was doing. Later I realized how I screwed up and I should have listened to all of my teachers much more dearly when they tried to sort of help me sort of, you know, expand. But then I got even older and I realized, no, I was really protecting myself from all the shit <laughs> that was about to, like everyone else kind of went through. Um, it's such a strange journey, right? It's not normal. It's not the usual path that most composers take in this country. I just love that you were just doing it naturally, you know, and, and had, of course, this is what I'm going to pursue. Of course, this is what I'm going to do. And then the fact that you kept doing what you were doing, you know, through all the style wars and all the nonsense that was going on that thankfully is more or less over now, I think it's really fantastic. Yeah, well, style wars, like, it always cracked me up, like, as if style was something you could control, like, and people literally oh, I'm going to write in this style. I'm going like, how can you even, like, st style is not anything. It's just a consequence of what you're writing. It's not any, like, I don't think about style. It's just, it's what should happen at the end. And But composers actively trying to control their style. Um, something's off when you hear that. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead. We're hearing part of my conversation with composer Mark Mellitz. And I opened up the program with a piece of his, a string quartet, wonderfully performed by the Debussy Quartet. That's from string quartet number three, subtitled Tapas. 
which as you might imagine, consists of very short movements and we heard movement seven. I'll return to that quartet and play a lot of other music by Mark on the program today. One thing is for certain, and that's that Mark is a very prolific composer. You've written a lot of music. Do you think a lot about, um, you know, whether or not you're repeating yourself, how you stay true to your voice, but also develop? Like, how, how do you think that through? Oh, so that's a mind game. And there's probably, uh, if, maybe you can, can be my therapist for a moment, help me figure this out. Um, so I, feel like everything I write needs to be completely different from the last thing that I wrote. And I honestly think that. <laughs> so as I'm writing something, I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm doing something very new. I will borrow techniques that I've done. I knew, I know this worked in this piece. I'm going to try and vary it. If I try to do the same thing, if I have a piece that was successful and it worked and I try to write it again, as I used to do, I fail. So I stop doing that. That I simply cannot do. I can't rewrite the same piece. But what I can do is learn from what I did learn from what I did wrong and learn from what I did right to influence the next piece, right? And then, but really try to come in a completely different sound world. Like I'm just like, it's a whole different universe and I'm just, the music itself for me is always coming from the instruments. So if I'm writing for piano, I like shrink myself in the little tiny mark and jump inside the piano. How does the piano resonate? And what does it want to say? Which is different from what a string quartet would do if I was inside the violin. So this is a whole different piece. And then something will be played and I had this interesting experience where someone came up to me who hadn't heard my music in a long time. She was a friend from many years ago, and she happened to be at this concert. And she came up to me after the concert, after not hearing my music for several years, and said, hey, your piece was great, and I knew it was yours without looking at the program. And I'm like, how? She goes, because it sounded like you. Like, and I'm like, you mean like what I was writing 10 years ago? She's like, yeah. So the reality is it's actually not that different. Like, I really feel it is, and I've convinced myself it is. But if I pull myself out, it's still in the world of what I write. So I actually don't think it's as different as I think it is, as this person proved to me that there are some very similar stylistic things from, for me from piece to piece to piece that's recognizable, even though I'm, I, don't, I, I don't think so, but I'm so far into it that it's just sort of subtleties of language for me. Um, so you can't, I guess in the end, as I realized, you just, you can't escape yourself. And I've tried to, and I've tried to really write outside the box in something completely different and it, it doesn't work. So I stay within the box, I guess, because i that's all I know. I don't know anything else. So if it's recognizable, that's fine. If I'm repeating myself a bit, it's, it's possible. Um, but the important thing is internally, I don't feel like I am. Um, in my opinion, is our, our primary purpose should be to express ourselves, right? If your music doesn't say something about yourself personally, um, to me, just my own opinion, but it's not art. You haven't really done anything. What else can it be? Exactly. Thank you. If it's not, that's exactly what it is. And that's exactly what art is. And, and in fact, art is more than that. So art is not just that. So to me, you know, there's a difference between, you know, making music and making art. So we can all write music, but is it art? <laughs> so art to me communicates and it's more, it's more than just that. So it's, it is an expression of what I'm trying. I'm trying to create this thing. You know, when I create this this thing out of, it, it's silence. There's just like, there's nothing happening. You take a razor blade into the silence and you open up and then there's music. It's just kind of always in there. You're kind of exposing it. I'm trying to create this little thing, this little ball of music, but then I give it to performers. You know, cause to me, I just wrote a piece. I haven't created art yet. I wrote music. That's a third of the work of art. Like I, I'm, as a composer, I'm responsible for a third of every work of art performers are responsible for another third like they take that and shape it interpret it play it put their it put their stamp on it when players read music down i don't there's nothing like when they play a lot of contemporary music they feel like composer wrote quarter is 128 i'm playing it at 128 i mean 
why you know acoustics halls can change that you should have your own interpretation if you're okay interpreting beethoven why are you not okay interpreting boosted i mean what's the difference i mean it's just whatever um so that's another third that should happen for it but then people need to to hear it it needs to communicate from stage into people's ears which can come from your freaking phone or it can come from the stage or it can come off the radio but when that happens then you've created art like that that three-way communication is what art is all about and all i think all artistic forms in some way or another do this you know i mean visual arts are a little bit different you don't need performers which is why they're special and they they have an advantage over all of us like playwrights and musicians who need who, or composers who need musicians um, but to me that's that's the artistic expression like that's art otherwise i'm just writing music i'm not creating art if no one's playing it i haven't done anything i haven't i haven't said anything you know i need performers to help get that message out and people to hear it
So Tapas was originally a string trio, which I wrote for my good friend Fabrice Pion, who's a French cellist. He has a wonderful festival. He used to have a wonderful festival in France. And this was at the beginning of it. Um, and the piece itself, it's how many movements? Seven or eight, I think, total. Um, they're all really short. And I had this idea of each movement being about one thing. Like when you have tapas, if you go to a Spanish restaurant, I love tapas. It's a small plate that's designed around one particular combination of ingredients or even highlighting one ingredient. An ingredient and i love that it's different from like a larger meal that takes you on a journey so i wanted the right music that was different flavors each movement was like a little little thing and you know that's what it does the first movement does one thing it starts on one freaking pit just c and hammers it out and i add another note add an e flat come back to c add another note and come back and another note and come back and eventually sort of unfolds the whole melodic and harmonic underpinning which are one of the same in this piece Nice. So you knew you were going to write a bunch of different um, movements. They're all going to be different from each other, obviously, like tapas. Did you sketch it out like, oh, movement five will be fast, movement four slow, or did it just kind of come organically as you were writing? So they all come at the same time. So I hear them all simultaneously. So if I'm writing, it's just sort of tapas. I'll hear everything kind of like this. Um, and then I have to sort of turn it this way and figure out, oh, this was actually the first movement. This is the middle movement. <laughs> uh, this is the last movement. And then these three, I'm not using at all. Usually I write too much. Like tapas, I may have had 20 movements usually, or so I, at least I have one and a half times to two to the double or more of how many movements I'm actually working with. So if I ended up with eight, for sure, I probably had at least 15 at some point. And, you know, I threw them at the wall and some of them just fell, <laughs> right? And some of them stuck. And like, and it's stuck in a higher position. That should be one. And then as I'm get like sort of a third of the way, halfway through each movement, they start to tell me where they want to be like, oh, this big slow one, which is moving five, which I gave you, should be in the middle. And that other one that I just talked about before, that needs to be the first movement. Now I know. Now I need to write the last movement. I write the last movement and realize, oh, that's actually not the last movement. <laughs> it's a transition to something else. So it all sort of happens that way. I do not plan it out. I let the music tell me what the form should be instead of the form telling me what the music should be. It's just easier that way. You know, um, if I'm creating a work, then to frame it, which is the form, you're going to frame at the end once you really know how, you know, like, what's the what what is the the painting? Uh, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I like the description too about you know, hammering out C and then adding the E flat. And um, a lot of the music of yours that I've heard is kind of motivic in that way. Is is that uh, a fair characterization? Totally. Absolutely, totally. Little cells, little games that I like to play, little math mathematical things. We take a little group of notes and play with it, turn it upside down, backwards, inside out, and, you know, super Mozart and super Bach. It's just very, not to compare, but I'm just saying the idea of playing with motivic stuff is, I think, a lot of composers, it's it's fun. It's like playing, and maybe that's part of the reason it's fun to play, because it's fun to write. I don't know, but um, the idea of fun is in there for sure.
Let's talk about string quartet number four. So we're going to play uh, from Prometheus movement seven. Yeah. Every movement of Prometheus, like the third quartet about tapas is all about tapas. Every movement of Prometheus, my fourth quartet is about fire and some aspect of fire. So there's like the movement I gave you is sort of like the forest fire that just sort of takes over and kind of rips through the forest. Doesn't care. It's super happy because it's just eating trees and to a forest fire, this is what it does. And it's having a blast and it's just gonna kind of go through. But there's all this destruction, you know, in its path. It's completely oblivious to that. I wanted to write this kind of like machine-like thing that kind of goes through. There's other movements of Prometheus that are sort of flickering of fire and like a fireplace fire. There's another movement that's sort of two people in front of a fireplace. You know, these no one knows all this, it's just what I was thinking about, you know. Um, but each movement is sort of some aspect of fire. They're not all like big for ferocious, sometimes they're kind of small. Um and you know small fires but there's an aspect of fire in everything in prometheus movement seven of string quartet number four by mark mellitz again we heard the debussy quartet that piece is subtitled allegro groove there is a rhythmic groove to everything that mark writes it's a wonderful recording from the album debussy quartet plays string quartets three four and five by mark mellitz okay i'm going to come back and play a little bit of string quartet number five but that's quite a lot of quartets <laughs> let's go a different direction so i want to feature a piece by mark now called tight sweater so tight sweater, um, it's for cello, piano, and marimba. 
and that particular movement so again so i guess i'm seeing a pattern where i write in multi-movements this is definitely something that i that i tend to do although i just finished a piece that doesn't do that um where i like suites i'm really i you know i love bach and football especially bach but Vivaldi corelli i listen to a lot of that you know and bach has these suites you know for piano for for harpsichord um that are incredible um uh, you know violin suites too and cello suites too are just like dance like lots of little dance movements so not necessarily dance movements but i love the idea of these little movements playing with each other and interacting with each other so um a lot of my music does that and tight sweater is just another one you know that sort of fits into that i don't know how many movements are in tight sweater six or seven i can't remember um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but the the movement that you have is the slow movement which i wrote when my first daughter was born and I found myself, you know, my wife being a professional violinist was off every weekend with concerts every Friday night, Saturday night. I had the baby and I found myself putting this thing to, down to sleep every night. And what's a composer to do but just sort of start make up little melodies and sing to it. So that's what I was doing. And then I one night she was complaining. I, could, I was trying to put her down and she was kind of squirming. And um, I was trying to figure out why because last night she was fine when I put her down. Um, and then I realized, I wonder if I can remember the melody I sang last night. So I, cause I just make them up every night. Right. So I kind of remembered it, sang it. And then she went right to bed. I'm like, oh my God, first of all, she's being a music critic. She doesn't like this one. <laughs> <laughs> and she wants that one from, so I, she, in that way, she made me sing the same melody every night for six weeks to put her down. So in that movement, which I wrote with her in my lap. So that's why it's really quiet. Um, that melody that you that I used to sing to her happens at the very very you'll hear it at the very very end sort of it's almost like a play in the Brahms the famous Brahms waltz but there's a little um, kind of melody at the very end that's that's the one that I would sing to her and that kind of everything leads to that um, the cello carries the melody I write music I write a lot of melodic music but I never write melodies if that makes I don't know if that's going to make sense but I write harmony so I feel that like in this piece in particular, I, I wrote the harmonic scheme and then, you know, I write harmony first and then melody kind of follows. So the harmony was always four bars, eight bars in front of the melody. So as I'm writing it with my daughter in my lap, I'm sort of sketching out the harmony. Then I go back in and just pick out notes from the harmony and notes in the harmony and not in harmony that end up being the melody. And if it works well, then the melody kind of will just fall right into it and it's easy. And if I want the melody to sort of go this way or that way, I just push the harmony that way first, and then the melody will kind of fall into it. So this is a good this piece is a good example of how I write melody by not writing melody. Like the harmony comes first, and then the melody just sort of is there. But having said that, that's all you hear is the melody because it's just the cello screaming out this melody all the way through. And people always think, oh, you know, you write the melody first, and then you come up with everything else. It's the complete opposite. That was the last. 5% of that piece is, is everything that you hear. Like everything is all set and ready to go, then the melody would just fall in.
That's a great quote. Uh, <laughs> I, I write melodic music, but I don't write a lot of melodies. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. I mean, every melody has an inherent harmony to it. Mm -hmm. And we don't think about it. It's like if you're just writing melody and you don't understand the harmony that's behind it, then you're not really writing melody. Well, that's, you know, when I used to teach piano a long time ago, and if I had students that were, um, you know, not, not interested very much anymore, I would always delve into composition and things. Um, but one thing that everybody, everybody, no matter who they were, found fascinating was to write a melody and then harmonize it in different ways. And, right. you know, you, you, you could find the harmony that, that is implicit in the melody and bring it out, or you could go against the grain, you know, right. but they were so fascinated by how the harmony transforms the melody. I mean, everybody. Right. Well, that's the point. And that's what I'm trying to do. Only I just go to that first so that I can control the melody. So, yeah, Smoke was written for New Music Detroit. And, you know, I was writing for. Detroit and you know these Detroit musicians and I don't know man the idea of smoke just kept coming into the picture of just this hazy Detroit cover I don't know <laughs> it just was there so um, the music itself is is you know I knew the musicians I was writing for and I had worked with them a lot people like Ian Ding and Eric Ronmark and um, I just felt like I knew these guys and I knew what I could write for them so I just kind of got into into it um they have an electric guitar in the group so you know there's a lot of there's a bit of a rock influence because if you're going to write for electric guitar being the instrument that it is if you try to step away from the rock you know influence that this guitar has had then i think you're walking in the wrong direction so i kind of walked straight into it and just grabbed the guitar and said this is what we're going to do so there's it's definitely more you know again it's multiple multiple movements just like all the other pieces um, and it's a very heavy, heavy guitar part.
Um, and then we're going to talk about string quartet number five, Wanayetu. Yeah. So Wanayetu, um, that one is all about winter. I wrote this in the dead of winter. Um, and that was one of the polar vortexes. I don't know which time you spent in Chicago during that particular one, but there was, we had this polar vortex and, you know, Chicago doesn't, despite its reputation, doesn't really get that cold, but that particular winter it did. It was freaking freezing cold. And I work here in my studio at the back of our condo in the middle of the city and we're right on the, right on an alley, which in the wintertime is absolutely spectacularly gorgeous. The whole thing is just covered with snow, but it also had this weird acoustic. Like you could hear people walking in the middle of the night and just sort of like the snow would crack and it would kind of echo through the alley, which I thought was super cool. Um, so that every movement of Wanietu was about winter, extreme cold. Wanietu is a Lakota term for, um, for, for winter of which they actually have many, many, many terms. It's also like the calendar, as I understand, um, for that particular tribe was, you know, often had to do with winter and sort of seasonal, like, um, and it was written for a group in Minnesota and they were playing up where this Lakota tribe used to be. And I just, I felt like I wanted to reference that. <laughs> was the seventh movement of string quartet number five want to get to by mark mellitz performed by the debussy quartet off of that wonderful album debussy quartet performing quartets three four and five of mark mellitz let's turn to a chamber orchestra piece uh, this was actually commissioned by the orpheus chamber ensemble it's a multi-movement work here is a short movement from the work brick
That was the Orpheus Chamber Ensemble and a live performance of a movement from Brick, a piece they commissioned from composer Mark Mellitz. I want to thank Mark Mellitz so much for being a guest on the program today. It was really great to uh, talk with him, pretty overdue in many respects, so great to finally catch up with him and feature a lot of his music. Uh, check out Mark, M-A-R-C, Mellitz, anywhere you get your music. There's quite a lot of it to dive into. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org. For Relevant Tones, I'm Seth Bostead, and I'm going to take us out now with track 11, Machine 5, from the album Paranoid Cheese. Thanks so much for listening, and enjoy. <laughs>